it is so easy to be open about the things that are frustrating you. And it's very easy to then build camaraderie with people who are equally as frustrated. But what that can do is it can turn a little bit negative and toxic. And that can be a very difficult place to then lead from. Hey, welcome to the Delivering Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and this is a show where we normalize the hardest parts about working in growth and leadership in tech. My guests and I focus our conversation around two or three really challenging moments in their career. I ask them questions to hear about what happened, learn their perspective, and hear about what they would do differently if they could go back in time. My guest today is Margaret Kelsey. Margaret is the former VP of marketing at OpenView who created and evangelized the PLG category. She's the former brand and creative director at AppCues and the former content marketing and community manager at InVision. Currently, Margaret works full-time as an advisor and co-hosts her own podcast called Don't Say Content with Devin Bramhall. In our conversation, Margaret shared three really interesting moments in her career that I think will resonate a ton with the listeners. She talked about a time where she accidentally created a toxic culture within her team by not filtering enough of the leadership communications that she was getting with her own team. She talked about times when she struggled to get approval and buy-in to resource her ideas with her executive team. And she talks about the struggle of tying too much of your self-worth into a job and what happens when you're no longer happy at work and how that follows you into your personal life. Margaret shared a ton of good stuff and a lot of good advice for folks who might be at different stages of these challenges themselves. Let's jump right in. So where I fear we could start is from the outside looking in, you've got a very impressive journey. App cues, Envision, OpenView, like what led you into this world? So I oftentimes think there was like a pre-technology and post-technology in my career. And I did weird things before I found my time at Envision. I was a portrait photographer for in-studio portraits for like people that if your great-grandchildren were going to be rich because of you, you would have one of these portraits above your mantle. I worked at a PR agency for a very short stint. I couldn't cut it with the high stakes environment of a South Beach PR agency. And then when I stumbled on Envision, it really feel like I found something that hit on a lot of different pieces of my brain. It was creativity focused. It was semi-technical. I was writing content for designers. So I had to learn kind of a new industry. I got to write. I got to be creative. I was speaking to a creative audience. So I was able to be even more creative than maybe I had in my previous careers. And so that was the turning point, I think, in my career that made my soul start to sing. But when I look back through my career, the red thread has always been creating shared languages. So at Envision, I was creating shared language with our audience to make sure that they felt like we understood them. At AppCues, when I started to manage, I was creating shared language within my team. And then at OpenView, it was really creating shared language as I started to manage up and started to talk about strategy and then also started to talk to our prospect and portfolio companies about marketing. Can I talk to a founder and get them to understand marketing on a deeper level? So that's been really when I look back on my career, the thing that's gotten through it is this idea of why do we speak different languages? Can we all just sit back and come together to figure out what the words are that we're using and what we're actually trying to say? And if we pause a little bit there, we can actually start to create a lot of resonance, but also that has business value and can increase velocity of getting stuff done. And so you worked at OpenView. And so some folks look at you and might think, Margaret's an expert at PLG. How does PLG fit into creating these shared languages or does it? I think it does because historically, as software was sold, the sales process allowed for individual salespeople to understand the pain points of their target customer 
and be able to adapt a little bit more individually. And I think the PLG motion, this idea that we have to do a lot of marketing and selling at scale without a lot of human intervention means that we have to move that process that normally you get to kind of have some discovery calls and you got to understand the personalities and you can kind of do some due diligence on how people like to buy and what people like to talk about and how to kind of chum them up. And at PLG, you have to do that at scale up front in a way that doesn't involve a lot of the human nuance that you can pick up on in those one-to-one scenarios. So for me, I think that was the importance of it is we needed to move that sense of belonging and understanding way up the funnel. Ah, oh, it's super interesting. And so PLG for you is just another way for you to apply this framework, passion, system of yours to a different problem set. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think for me too, the PLG motion that I've always been most interested in is heavy on brand and heavy on community. And I know brand can sometimes be seen as arts and crafts. But what I mean by that is, can we make the company and the software stand for something? And can we bring that emotional attraction of that sense of belongingness to this business software? And if we can do that, it's so much easier to bring people along the journey with you. So for me, that's always been the interesting piece is, can we create this shared sense of belonging in our marketing program so that way the company gains the credibility of that experience? This isn't a show about tactics or playbooks, but I'm curious if you could give one example just for folks listening to this, trying to picture in their minds what an example of good looks like. Can you share one that you like? Envision, during my time there, we were doing a masterclass at this. And so all of our content programs would feature designers talking about things that were going on at the cusp of their industry. What was changing? What did they love? What did they hate? What did they think was stupid? What did they think was amazing? But it was always at the cusp. It wasn't like what has happened. It was always what's most frustrating in your role right now. And we created a lot of content and big C community programs where we're connecting designers together to talk about this. But at the time, we were able to saturate that channel. And our blog became the place where designers would go to think about and learn about what was happening in their industry because we were going to those designers at the forefront of the industry and asking them to contribute content for us, or we would help them contribute content. And so to me, it was that cycle of internal culture. We cared so much deeply about our target audience, truly deeply wanted to understand them. External brand and how that showed up, content in which the way that we produced and then the community aspect of it. And then we would take those learnings and insights from what we were hearing from the community and we would talk about that internally and the culture would shift a little bit about, hey, this is really what's important to designers. Hey, this meme's really funny and it's going around in these forums. We really had a pulse on that because of that flywheel of internal culture, external brand content and community. As you share all this, I just can't help but think you describe this very succinctly and kind of effortlessly. Has this career path come somewhat naturally to you? Well, I think that piece of it where I can describe it now, I took a long time after Envision to try to diagnose why we were so good at that. I had all the tactical things that we did, but it didn't feel like those actually could translate. And I tried to translate some of them to AppQs, but it was a different audience and a different time and a different software and a different internal culture. And so that actually stumped me for a while. And I spent the time at AppQs and this time at OpenView to try to synthesize down that first principles thinking of, wait, why did this work? What were we building? And I didn't realize that at the time I kind of stumbled into it. I think the other thing that came naturally to me is I really like to have other people paint my fence for me. <laughs> I really enjoy lazy girl marketing TM, trying to trademark it. This idea of can I create a marketing program that solves for a lot of things at once? 
And can I create content programs where I'm getting actual subject matter experts to give me their point of view, their thoughts? And even in my own advising and consulting business right now, I have a value of trying to matter less. I want to set things up so that I'm not the bottleneck. I'm not the linchpin. I'm not the person that has to be there in order for it to work. And has that also come to you with the benefit of time and distance? Yeah, absolutely. My time at Envision and AppQs, I felt maybe a little ashamed of the fact that I wanted to not matter as much. I wanted to like set these programs up and then step away from them. And a piece of me felt like that was laziness or that was, I don't know, some other kind of judgment on it. But what I realize now is that can be a superpower too. And especially in an advising consulting relationship, that's actually the best one to be. I never wanted to be somebody who People are like, what is she even doing here? Why is she on this call? I want to be really impactful for when I'm impactful and then be able to leave before people are wondering what the hell I do. You talked about how you didn't want to feel ashamed or maybe felt ashamed. And what's the difference between someone who is trying to build these systems or someone who, I want to detangle this a little bit. So where does that feeling of ashamed come from? Yeah, I think it's hustle culture. I think it's this idea of like you only are valuable if you're so busy that you can't see straight. That you're staying late and you're there and you're visible. Yeah. Yeah. Like the idea of force and effort being the only thing that we can measure of value rather than identifying what the most important priority could be or the thing that if you just solve for that thing up here, you actually don't have any of the five issues that you had down below that you're trying to solve for. That's what I find really interesting is can I unlock something even higher up? Can I solve for a bigger challenge that then makes my life even easier? I used to wear it on my sleeve, the hustle culture stuff. I didn't know it at the time, but with the benefit of time for me, I look back on that era in my mid-20s when I was gunning for promos. I wanted to be the last one there. I wanted to like go in on the weekends. I wanted to tell people, yeah, I'll get it done anyways later on after work. And it's only later that I'm like, man, what a mistake that was. Listen, I think it's completely normal and natural, especially not only because of our culture, but also there's a dopamine hit of checking things off a to-do list. If you can write down 15 things and check them all off, that feels good. It's a lot harder to sit and maybe ponder a question that's so big that maybe it takes two or three days or five weeks or whatever it is to actually come to some sort of understanding in your own brain about it. And I see that, too, with a lot of folks that are kind of rising managers, that they can't get out of that checkboxy mindset because of the dopamine rush that comes from knowing that you've accomplished things and you can close your laptop at the end of the day and be like, I did those exact items rather than like, I thought about something that's probably unsolvable for eight hours today. It's human nature, too, because thinking requires a lot of calories and your brain doesn't want to spend a lot of calories. So it's normal that we would want to do those quick turn tasks instead of that deeper thinking that might be a little bit more evolutionarily difficult. And you don't get that dopamine hit for putting something on the not doing this right now list, right? You just don't. Although if I could check it off of a not doing it now list, maybe that would make me feel better. Yeah, check it off. It's like check, confirm, definitely not doing it now, still not doing it now. So there are folks listening to this that will think, man, Margaret's really impressive. She's worked at all these cool companies. She seems to articulate herself really well. She probably doesn't screw up a whole bunch. And so I'm curious if you can bring us back down to earth and tell us about a time when you have either made a mistake or received some tough feedback. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm a complete screw up. So please don't think that about me. I got feedback at AppQs that really floored me. And I realized I was so proud of the team that I had built and the culture of the content and brand team. 
at AppCuse. I felt like we had really high standards. I felt like we had a high emotional safety. We could talk about things that were working and not working. And the feedback that I got was actually that I had created a little mini culture that was at odds with the broader marketing team and the organization as a whole. I was very open about what I was frustrated with and very open with what wasn't working for me. And that then dripped down into the team and they started feeling grumpy about the things I was feeling grumpy about. And I looked up and I realized, yeah, my team is at odds with a lot of things that are happening at this company. And I am the person that didn't do a good enough job filtering down and keeping that like professional layer of leadership where maybe I disagree, but I commit and I can bring it to my team with a happy face. And so that's something that I've kind of constantly been working on because it is so easy to be open about the things that are frustrating you. And it's very easy to then build camaraderie with people who are equally as frustrated. But what that can do is it can turn a little bit negative and toxic. And that can be a very difficult place to then lead from. Can I ask about an example? Are you comfortable? Can we talk about a real example where something happened at the company and you had to make a choice as a manager? Do I share my frustration and be real or do I filter this and say something else? Well, that was the issue is I never made that choice consciously. I would just filter it right down. It would be simple things like the balance of how much we were investing in what I was considering the long game of building community and building brand and a positive brand experience versus maybe some of the quicker turn conversion tricks and tactics. I even bought the domain name Growth.Marketing because I was so annoyed that growth marketing was like gross marketing sometimes. My thought was that I was going to like create this website to just shame all the gross tactics that maybe other growth marketers were using at the time. Again, I never did it, but very toxic, very negative. I didn't do it because I realized how toxic and negative it was. But with any of those frustrations, I wasn't putting myself in the position of leadership or asking enough questions to be curious around where those decisions were coming from and what their decision making framework was. I was just getting annoyed and I would filter it down to my team immediately without having that natural checkpoint of, hey, should I filter this down or should I not? I just missed that whole piece of doing it. It's a really relatable thing because no one really tells you how to do this or what to do. And it's actually hard sometimes when you're on a team to know, is your manager being real or giving me the spin here? And so how should folks think about this? If they're new managers or they're in a new leadership role or they're at a company that's doing some stuff that maybe they don't agree with for whatever reason, how should they think about it? Yeah. Well, I think the earliest thing that you can do is anytime you're taking a role at a company, understand what those shared values within the organization are. And some of them you'll be able to pick up in the interview process. Some people will be open with them. And then sometimes it's just getting into that organization and understanding where the leaders operate from. Sometimes that those will be very close and very easy values that you yourself share. Sometimes it'll be clear that the organization maybe is valuing different ways of making decisions than you would. And you have to make a call there. And I think this is a really important piece is that it doesn't have to be cataclysmic value separation from you and the organization. Sometimes it can be slight and subtle. And it just might be that you're not able to show up in the way that you want to show up as a leader or as a individual contributor within that organization's shared decision-making framework or shared cultural values. And that's fine because you can operate outside of your shared values. You can operate outside of your own values for some period of time. But if you do it for long enough, and especially if they're different enough from your values, you'll start to see it in the way that you're living your life or not living your life or 
the stress that you're taking home or whatever it might be. This episode is presented by AppCues. If you work in product-led growth, you know how important activating and engaging new accounts is. Turning new accounts into active users is critical to your success in a PLG environment and typically why activated accounts is a North Star metric for growth teams. It's why my team spent years focused on improving our new user onboarding experience during my time at Wistia and at Postscript. And that's why I'm so excited that AppCues is sponsoring the show. They're just as passionate about helping product-led companies fix their onboarding and their retention as I am. They're the leading product onboarding and adoption platform for web and mobile apps, and they've helped over 1,500 SaaS orgs create exceptional onboarding experiences that convert new users into power users and brand advocates. So if you're looking for help activating more new accounts, head to appcues.com value. They have a free new user onboarding audit, which is done by Romley John. He literally wrote the book on new user onboarding, and he's a close personal friend of mine. For help, head to appcues.com slash value. This episode is brought to you by Novatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool, basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials, getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value, creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website and letting people play with them, click around and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Novatic. Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos and they're offering a free trial exclusively for delivering value listeners. Go to novatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. With the benefit of time, looking back on that period of your career, do you think you were living or working at a place that had misaligned values? Or do you think you were just a new manager and didn't know what you didn't know at that time? At that point, I hadn't had enough introspection to even understand the values that I was operating from. So I've done a lot of work myself the last couple of years to find what my own values are, my own leadership values, my own life values, the things that I want to prioritize and the ways that I make decisions. And so at that time, I think that it was just really a lot of my life and self was unexamined. And so... You get this feedback. How does the feedback come, by the way? Is this like a formal in a one-on-one -on -one at a performance review? Can you share a little bit more? Yeah. And it's so funny because I feel like this piece of feedback was so resonant to me that it hit me like a ton of bricks and it's something I think about a lot. I don't remember the exact circumstances. I believe it was in a performance review because I remember being a little bit like we didn't talk about this on an ongoing basis and all of a sudden now it's a bigger conversation. So whether it was a performance review or not, it was definitely in a place where I probably should have been micro-corrected over the course of the times that are, I were doing it. And it felt a little bit like it was saved up for one bigger conversation, which was maybe more of a gut punch, which maybe I needed. But also, as I manage, I specifically try to not do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm like wincing as you share it because I've gotten feedback like that that was saved up for a performance review and it hits you hard. And you're like, how long have I been doing this? And then you examine your last couple months and you're like, shit, I've been doing this for a while. And then it hits you harder because now it's a big part of you and you're wondering how many people are thinking about that part of you. It's like at the end of the day, somebody's like, you have spinach in your teeth. And you're like, I haven't had spinach since my smoothie this morning. Like, what the heck? I was walking around 
all day and nobody told me? Yeah, it's brutal. That's the worst. So what's your self-dialogue in that moment? So you get this feedback. You realize you've had spinach in your teeth all damn day. What happens then? Well, at first I'm like, no, look at my team. We're the ones that are doing it right and everyone else is doing it wrong, which is exactly the feedback. But (laughs) it's not a you versus them thing. I think it just washed over me and I could just see it way more clearly. And I understood that I didn't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I didn't have to not have some of the things that made my team very emotionally secure and that built that fun, playful energy. I didn't have to throw it all out, but I did have to make a better determination over when I shared my frustrations versus when I was able to put that positive spin on it and come to the team and motivate them to do good work. Yeah. One of the things that I always had a challenge with on a similar line is when my team or myself would have an idea for a project or a program and we'd all get excited about it and we'd all be convinced this is the right way to go. And then you've got to pitch things up the food chain, up the chain of command and have things that we're really excited about and have conviction in that don't get resourced. And so that was always something that I would voice my frustration actively to my team about where I eventually got feedback as well. But I'm curious to know, have you ever had that second thing happen to you where you've had something that you've had conviction in and it just doesn't get resourced and then you need to figure out what the heck to do? Oh, yeah. That was an experience of mine at OpenView specifically because the firm, how it operated was it's a partnership. There was committees and different partners would sit on different committees and have different team leaders be on that committee. And you would have to bring specific proposals up to the committees. And then sometimes they would go up to higher committees based on the level of investment or the level of change and shift that was needed. Sorry to interrupt you. Is a committee live? Like, is that you're in front of the room? You need to defend your dissertation type of thing? Yep, exactly. So you would put together a proposal beforehand. The real trick was if you could go to the committee members beforehand one-on-one, make your case, then the committee became a little bit more of a rubber stamp rather than you actually live debating things that people were hearing about for the first time. But that obviously was an investment in time and effort that sometimes you just didn't have, right? I sometimes didn't have the time to go around and shop it to every committee member and make sure that the thing that maybe they were concerned about was included in the proposal and yada, yada, yada. That in itself is like a leadership skill, right? It's like the pre-meeting alignment backdoor type of stuff. And no one tells you that. No one's like, what you actually should be doing is make sure that everyone in this meeting is not hearing about this for the first time. This meeting is just almost like a puppet show for things that they've already decided whether or not they're going to do or approve or whatever it might be. But yeah, I think that was the amazing thing is nobody kind of let me in on that. That was like me stubbing my toe for a while before I figured out that maybe that was a better way to go about doing it. Took me 10 years too long as well. Okay, so you're in front of this committee. You've got a plan in mind. How do you know it's not going well? The easiest way to kill a proposal was for there to be just some line of questioning that the answer was just like, I don't know, you got to trust me. (laughs) That's like the kiss of death for marketing. Because everyone's like, no, I want predictability, right? I have predictability in so many other areas of my business. Why can't you give me predictability in marketing? And the answer is usually that human beings are unpredictable AF. But that's a tough thing to bring into the room when you're supposed to be the leader that has all the answers. Right. Well, I feel like a lot of times when you're in that room, what you're trying to do is to validate an idea or invalidate the idea. For me, sometimes when I was in front of that room, What I wasn't able to articulate really well is that a lot of times you just need to know, yes, we have an idea, we have conviction behind it, and we really just need to know, will it unlock this huge opportunity for us 
Maybe the answer to that is no, but not knowing is the bigger risk. Like the bigger risk to us is not finding out if this is going to be something that's really big because the opportunity is massive. The downside is an opportunity cost. I never could articulate that well. I always just felt like I froze up and had to like defend myself and got nervous and anxious and uncomfortable and awkward. And so I don't know. That's what always happened to me anyways. I wish I had better systems. I would always go in with a big proposal, a big pitch. Coming from Envision, we did big things. We made a design documentary. We had international, huge film releases, parties of this design documentary. We were able to do bigger swings. And that's where I really felt like I cut my teeth in brand content community marketing for tech. And so for me, it was like always trying to get back there. And I'm sure that the reason that a lot of my proposals sucked badly is because I was trying to go full, let's just shoot the moon. And it was a different business. VCs don't have to shoot the moon in marketing in a way to be differentiated and to be different. And so I now know and I now coach people on making these incremental experiments and making sure that they're aligned with CFOs and finance, that these things are time boxed or smaller investments to test a hypothesis. But I definitely didn't do that at OpenView. I would go full bore, all in, Shark Tank style. Like, here's the investment that I want in my program. It's going to be amazing trust me kind of thing. But that's why you were hired, right? You were hired probably because you came from that background and you can push it. Maybe takes a little bit longer is figuring out how do I need to show up at this company? Because I talk to folks all day as a coach who are like six months into a new job and they're like, hey, something's not going well and I can't figure it out, but like I know it's not going well and I think it's maybe me, but I don't feel like it's me. And they can't articulate what you just said, which is that you need to start by aligning with the company, learning what's most valuable to them and then customizing your approach to the company, it's really friggin' hard to do. It's hard. And I think that the trust has to be built on both sides. And I think that a lot of times as a marketer, I've expected that since somebody hired me, they should just let me do whatever I want to do, rather than be more mindful of the fact that just because I got hired is the beginning of the trust building exercise. And then I still need to build trust and I still need to show ROI for my activities. And I still need to make sure that everyone thinks that I'm the right person for this job. And that doesn't end when you get hired. That actually is just the beginning of it. Like they're taking a chance on you to hire you. And then you get to prove yourself within the company rather than oh, they hired me, so now let me just go fly and give me an open pocketbook and I'm just going to go spend it in the way that I deem necessary. When I get this title, then people will listen to me. What you learn is when you get that title, it just changes your title. You still need to learn how to influence and how to align and how to motivate and inspire and all that stuff that you just talked about. That's the hard shit. That doesn't go away when you get the title. And so actually, the higher you go up, the more that you have to prove yourself and the more that you have to make sure that you're building trust and alignment within the organization, within the leadership team. I mean, we look at CMO tenures even in like peacetime and it was abysmal. And now I imagine we're going to see this in the next year or two where CMO tenure is just going to drop dramatically since everything is changing underneath us right now. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that get worse before it gets better. I think it was one of the hardest jobs to begin with. You're right. During peacetime, it was a really tough job. And we're not in peacetime anymore, and it's even harder. You're totally right. One of the challenges that I had related to what we're just talking about is anytime I would pitch something and it wouldn't go well, I'd bring that shit home with me because 
My work, success, or failure was like a big part of my personal identity. And I had a hard time detangling it. And I did all the things that people say they should do, but it still didn't really work for me. Have you ever struggled with that? You ever struggled with taking your work identity and having it bleed too much into your personal identity? Yeah. For the longest time, my work identity has been my personal identity. I've hung a lot of my everything, my value, the way I show up in the world, the things I think about, even the books I read. It tends to be focused on communication, marketing, self-help, self-improvement, understanding human beings. But that's all because I like to use that stuff in my work. It feels very focused. When I stop getting excited about the next stage of challenges within an organization, I start to get burnt out. And it's not overwork. It's just a lack of emotional ROI of the work that I'm doing. And when that happens, I get very demoralized. And then I wonder if I'm good at anything ever in my entire life. And that's a consistent spiral. Whenever I've been ready to leave a company, I have this consistent spiral of I realize that the work I'm doing is not fulfilling me emotionally. And then I start to pull back and I start to maybe work a little bit less. And then I feel bad about working a little bit less because I'm not having as much impact as I've always had. And then I wonder if I'm worth anything to anyone ever in my entire life. And then I finally do a good spinny loop and end up on my head and then sometimes change jobs or build my own career and then start to feel better about it. But then, you know, inevitably that cycle will come again. And I think for me, what I've recognized is it's a little bit of retraction just before like the next leap. And so now it's happened to me repeatedly enough that I can recognize what that is. But the first three times it happened, it was absolutely spiraling of who am I and what am I even good for in this world? Is this just destined to happen if you work in tech, which is always changing? Like that fit could change any moment. Yeah, I think the kind of work that you need to do can change at any moment because right now macro environments are changing. I think specifically with marketing, content consumption patterns are changing, right? The channels in which people consume content and understand information are changing rapidly underneath us. And so I think especially in the individual contributor role, I wouldn't be surprised to see that with a lot of people right now, which is if you own a channel or if you're a channel expert and that channel dries up on you, there will be this big, what the hell am I doing with my life? I think that a lot of folks that have been focused on converting through SEO are probably feeling that right now. It's like, what the heck is going on? As you can grow up in leadership, though, the more that you can attach yourself to understanding that your job is to be creative and your job is not to hold these things as precious and your job is to figure out what that next thing is and you can experiment with it and play with it. And that's your job rather than like having all of the solutions and running the playbook that maybe you have been running in the past. I think that's the way out of it. It's still hard, though. Well, and I'm even thinking like for individual contributors who are listening to this, this might change when you get a new boss, a new CMO, and your boss's boss gets replaced. Maybe when the company gets a new COO or chief of staff, like this kind of stuff can trickle down from a lot of different places if you're in the IC level. Oh, yeah. I call that executive thrashing, too. So anytime that you're going to get a new manager or you have a new executive, they come in and they change up your entire day to day. They change up your programs, your priorities, your metrics, whatever it might be. And then you're just standing there with maybe a job title or job role that you did not sign up for. And you have to figure out whether or not you're going to do it or not. And it kind of goes back to the first thing that we talked about, which is if your job has changed and the strategy has changed and it's no longer in alignment with what you find exciting, you called it your emotional ROI. If those things are incongruent, then you kind of either need to put on a good face or you need to change something. And that's hard. That's an uncomfortable thing. And I talk to folks all the time who feel personally slighted when that happens. It's like, yeah, we're going to start if it felt like family. It doesn't feel like that anymore. Everything has changed. 
So I don't know what to do about that, but that's a real thing. I think the worst metaphor that anyone has ever come up with is this idea of companies as family. It's not. You're not a family. You might be a pro sports team. And that actually makes more sense, right? You can have a new owner. You can have a new coach come in. And maybe they actually want to run a different defensive strategy, right? And maybe you're not actually the right fit for that team anymore. And then you get traded. But this idea that if you have a good agent and you can get traded and you still are valuable on the broader market is where that sense of safety and security comes from, right? It's like this organization might change and I can wear their colors and their badge and I can have them on my resume and I can be really proud of the work that I did at that one team. And I can always have that logo on my jersey that's hanging up in my office, but I'm not going to stay here forever. And I think that company as family thing is really, really fucked up. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I've been on both sides of it. I felt that way before. I felt slighted before. And if I'm being completely honest and vulnerable, I've interviewed folks and said, hey, we're a tech company that feels more like a family business. That's a line that I've said before. And I think back and I cringe on that shit. But it's the truth. It's how it felt in the moment. Well, and you might want to build up enough emotional safety and security that is like a family that you can come and be your authentic self and you can share your grievances and you can be open. The fact that we don't have another analogy except for family for that to be accepted as you are is also a unique criticism about our culture. Why couldn't it just be like that there's another thing that also allows you to do that that's not your family? Well, so here's what I'm thinking. Most people accept a new job thinking, I want to find a company I can be at for a while. And what I'm hearing you say is, hey, I want to find a company that's the right fit for right now. And that fit's going to change. And when that fit changes... I'm going to make a choice where I'm either going to change within the company so it's a better fit for me or maybe find a new company where it's a better fit. Does that fundamentally change the way we should think about our careers if we work in tech? This understanding that you're going to be at a tech company from two to four years is kind of what it's at right now, right? Like I see people once they're at three years at a tech company, I'm like, oh, we're about to jump ship probably, right? You're at least thinking about it. Right. I should go recruit them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we're seeing that happen in the way that people move about companies. I don't know if people are self-reflective enough to think about that as they're going into a company. And I also think that this idea of hitting the lotto ticket with a startup that then's going to IPO and you're going to stay with them from Series A to IPO, companies aren't IPOing anymore. We used to think that we were going to stay at that company for a long period of time and then wouldn't and then would still hop ship after a couple of years. But there's those macro forces where it's like we're already doing this. It's just can we think about it in a way that's a little bit more forward thinking? Can we be more honest with ourselves about what we're looking for at any given moment, knowing that again, that might shift underneath you and you might need to make a tough decision. And that's why I've been noodling around this idea of instead of recruiters for folks in tech. Oh, for individuals, not for the company. Yeah, I think that might be a better model because somebody might be three years at a company and not be visibly looking for work. But if you know that that person is a superstar and you can find them a better opportunity, that to me feels more aligned with this idea of thinking. And again, I don't have any next steps there. It's just something that I've been thinking about, which is we don't need recruiters. We need talent agents. Yeah, I love this idea. I mean, that's what you do in sports. And I think that we're seeing it a little bit in the creator economy. We're starting to see this happen where folks have representatives that you can contact if you want to work with them on the higher end of the creator market. So it would make sense that that could bleed into other markets as well. If you could go back in time, it's younger Margaret. You're in one of these roles. You've lost the emotional ROI. You're stuck. What advice would you give your former self right as you start to enter one of these periods that you feel like you called it spiraling a little bit when you're in one of these periods that doesn't feel good anymore? What would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to, sounds very woo-woo, but honor the rest 
part of it, instead of using that energy and spiraling with it, it's like you can sink back into that energy and just accept the fact that the reason that you're pulling back might be to create space for new opportunities, to create space in your calendar, to be able to talk to more people about your next step, to get more curious and introspective about the work that you want to do versus not do. And so I think that piece, especially with hustle culture, where you feel like more is better, more work is better. Oh, no, I'm doing less work. I need to fill it with something. I'll fill it with anxiety about the fact that I'm worthless. Instead, if you could just take that retraction and the space that you have from that retraction and do something productive with it, even if it doesn't feel immediately productive, but start to have exploratory phone calls, start to go talk to your network, even start to just seed it out there into the world that you're looking for potentially a next option, but you don't know what it might be. That's a more useful period of that retraction energy or that space in your calendar or space in your mind than oh, this must mean I'm worthless and let me go spend a lot of time thinking about how worthless I am. Right. Or mourning the loss of this old thing that you used to have. Love that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the mourning aspect of it is huge. I think anytime I've left an organization, a job, a team, I've spent a lot of time. And I think that's probably good to do. I think you should mourn the loss of whatever the thing is that you're stepping away from. But again, not having that secondary emotion of like, I am mourning and that is bad. Just like I am mourning and that is a perfectly fine thing to do right now. Right. I used to love it here. It used to be this great thing. I remember it being this old thing, but it's not that anymore. And I remember what it was and I'm aware that it's not. And I'm going to go look for the next thing is different than just blaming yourself or being bummed out. Yeah. And I think that it's always that secondary emotion that gets you right. You feel the thing. And then you have a secondary emotion about it. Oh, that feels bad or I shouldn't feel that way or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's the silly part. Like the, oh, I'm sad about the fact that this part of my career is over. This job is probably over for me and I need to look for something else. You could just feel that without having that secondary one of like, and that makes me terrible or that makes me bad or. Right. I'm embarrassed or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. I'm anxious about feeling sad, about feeling mad, about feeling bad, about feeling angry. That's when it starts to spiral. Yeah. That's like a more accurate thought pattern for most of us. The second thing. Oh, me too. Still, I'm listen. This is something that I'm only thinking about because I tell myself that all the time. That's only able to come up because I'm like actively coaching myself about that. But that's good, right? I mean, that's kind of been the thread of our conversation is awareness, awareness into what you're feeling, into what you're thinking, into what you're saying and how you're acting. And that's a big step in your career. And as you level up and become a leader, that awareness, it's hard to get. Yeah. Especially as a leader, I think that the folks around you turn into mirrors for the things that maybe you want to work on or not work on. And that's what I coach on a lot, too, is like, listen, your team is going to show you things about yourself. There's might be some of those things that you're like, no, I'm cool with that. Like, I like that piece of me and I'm going to keep that as being a leader that does that thing or has that piece of me. There might be other pieces that somebody shows you that you're like, oh, didn't know that I was doing that. That AppQ's example, I was like, oh, don't want to be creating a toxic culture within an organization. Like, that sounds awful. I will change that. But I think that the leadership to me is such a gift because it ends up being a million mirrors reflected back at you. And if you can do the work to understand how you're affecting other people. And what things that you're okay with versus what things you want to change about yourself. I think that really, really can be transformational yourself as a person, not just as a leader. If you could go back in time, what would be one skill that you would have loved to have seen today when you look back in the mirror? What's one skill you wish you worked on if you could go back in time? Boundaries. Okay. What does that mean to you? Oh, man. So I think I did a little bit of the opposite where I would 
take all of the mirrors that reflected back to me as a leader. And I would take all of those things as that former of like everything is something I should change about myself rather than there are boundaries of what feedback you even let into yourself. Feedback is a gift. And then you get to decide whether or not you want to do anything with that. And that person's perception of you or how you're showing up to them, you can decide that it's a them problem. So I didn't know that you didn't have to accept all feedback until very recently. I just assumed when you got feedback from someone who was more senior than you, you just took it on the chin and kept it moving. I didn't know you could do this. I know. Me either. You could just let somebody be frustrated with you and that might be fine. Agree to disagree. I'm going to continue being who I am. And there's a way that that goes too far and then you're an asshole. But I think most people that are concerned and most people who have used mirrors as a way to try to change everything about yourself to fit into the world perfectly so you actually don't bother anyone, they're probably so far away from getting to the point of being an asshole that you can like push them even further than they feel comfortable with. Because I tend to see that like people on any sort of binary that are too strong, you have to like overcoach them to the opposite one that they feel really uncomfortable with because only then will they make any sort of incremental improvement towards the other more balanced approach. I was talking to somebody that I used to manage and she was so worried about showing up as a bitch at work. And I'm like, nobody ever would think that about you. And so I want you to go and do something really bitchy because whatever's in your brain as being really bitchy is probably just a little bit more close to being able to share what's really on your mind. And so it's like by getting out of her comfort zone and allowing her to be a bitch, it means that she's actually just a little closer to being candid. Yeah, we compensate so far the other way that you need to break the pattern with a stronger opposite pattern, which maybe just inches you a little bit closer to the middle. Yeah, because you're never going to do that full swing probably to complete other end mode. But yeah, I think about that all the time where it's get a little closer to that thing that makes you feel really uncomfortable and maybe you'll do a half step closer to something more balanced. That's great feedback. Have you ever worked with a professional coach, by the way? I have not, but I've had a lot of therapists. I'd be curious if this is something you talk about in therapy, but one of the things when I first learned I could get feedback and not immediately need to react to it or take it as truth. I got some tough feedback from a manager of mine and I didn't really agree with the feedback, but I didn't know I could really disagree with it. So I was working with this coach and she was like, hey, I want you to do an exercise and write down 20 other things that might be influencing this feedback. And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, just list out 20 other things that might have influenced what happened with this person and what might have caused them to give the feedback or maybe things are going on in their life or their work situation has nothing to do with you. And let's just see what comes out. And when I did that, I wrote down all these things that might have influenced the feedback that I got that actually weren't me behaving in a way that was incorrect. It was just other things that were going on around me that I wasn't tuned into. And so that to me was like a really helpful thing for anybody listening to this who's thinking, how do I not accept feedback or how do I decide if I want to accept it? That was super helpful to me. Yeah, I think that's huge. We were remote before remote was cool. This is a decade ago. During my time at Envision is when Slack became a thing. When I first joined, we just got a bunch of Skype names that was like, that's your team. Just call people on Skype when you want to talk to them. It was bizarre. So when Slack first became a thing and we were starting to understand this remote communication we talked a lot about this idea of default to expecting that that person's not trying to be rude or piss you off or whatever it is. Like default to the understanding that that person might just be trying to send a quick message and their tone maybe is a little curt. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Going back to your point about feedback, it's like if you can give that person the benefit of the doubt that they're not trying to just specifically piss you off or make you feel bad or whatever the thing is that that feedback brings up in you. And in fact, maybe 
to your point, that they have something else going on and they just delivered it a little bit roughly or it's triggering to them because of something that had happened in their life or maybe they got that coached out of them from another manager and they didn't know how to say no to that feedback or whatever it might be. I think that can be huge when you're working, especially in tech and and the remote context that we're in now is just always defaulting to giving that person the benefit of the doubt in the way that they're communicating. Yeah, that's great feedback. Great advice. So working in tech isn't easy. You get tough feedback whether you choose to accept it or not, and you make mistakes. I'm curious, you ever thought about just leaving it all behind and going and working at like a coffee shop or doing something easier? All the time. I mean, I'm half stepped into leaving it all behind by advising and coaching right now. And that has allowed me to do a lot more artwork. So I have always dabbled and was an art major my first semester in college and then have since I graduated taken a lot of adult education classes at museums in whatever city I'm living in at the time. And so when I left OpenView a year ago and building this business, I specifically carved out part of my work day when I have childcare to do that part of my life. And so it does feel like it's a little bit more balanced and I'm able to show up for my tech work life in a better headspace because I've spent that other time doing the more balanced work. I love that. Normally, I have a great closing question, but I want to ask you a curveball today because it's top of mind for me. I've got an almost three-year-old. We're trying to do potty training. It's not going well. What potty training advice do you have for me or anyone listening? I'm going to piss you off. Everett has been challenging in lots of other ways, but he was an absolute angel potty training. And I think that preschool daycare did a big piece of it for us and helped reinforce. His personality is shaping up to be very heavily influenced by his peers. And so when he went into a bigger classroom and he had some older kids tell him that diapers were for babies, he just decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And so we did not do a specific method. My friends like the what's the new buzzy method. We did the three day method. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I think so. There's like a book and the three days underwear off and they just run around the house and pee everywhere. Yep. Yeah. I have friends that like that, but I am very annoyingly did not have to try very hard potty training. It's classic parenting. It's like, no advice. I don't know. We didn't have that challenge. Oh, my mom did say that. My mom gave really good advice where she said, anytime that you're talking about potty training with your kid, default to talking about how good it makes them feel to have dry underwear and to be self-sufficient and all that rather than it makes you happy. Because if it makes you happy, they'll use it as a way to control you. They'll know that they can manipulate your emotions by doing a good job or bad job at pottying. And if you just default to like, doesn't that make you feel so good about yourself that you're this big kid and can do it all? It helped eliminate the power struggle that can come from potty training. Oh, I like that. Okay. I didn't read that part. I only read a couple blog articles about the three-day method, but that's good advice. And for folks who are listening, who just want to learn more about you and what you're up to as an advisor and as a coach and want to listen to your podcast, where should we send them? I'm fairly active on LinkedIn, so feel free to connect with me, follow me there. So no barrier to entry there. My podcast is Don't Say Content with Devin Bramhall. We do a weekly show where we unpack a lot of the lack of shared language that the marketing field has right now. So we normally explore terms or a series of terms or ideas that we haven't really decided on shared meaning or shared definition on. And we are not a place for tactics and playbooks. We just literally get into the messy middle and sometimes don't find our way out. And then the episode's over and hopefully you have something to think about as you go on in your day. But we're definitely not giving you any tactics and not tying things up in a pretty bow. Thank you for coming on and sharing some of your journey. Appreciate it. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, 
the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise... Hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.